Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Broadley from The Cloud Pod. In this series, we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. Well, Jonathan, it's time for another TCP Talks. Excellent. Who do we have today? Today, we have the author of K-Native in Action with Jacques Chester. Uh, he's a pivotal engineer uh, and is writing the first book all about K-Native and Kubernetes and what that means for you. And uh, you know, we've been talking about K-Native a lot on the main show. So I definitely think this is a great opportunity to really have our listeners learn what about K-Native is about, uh, what makes it interesting, and how it's different from Lambda, Google, or Azure Functions. That sounds great. And for those listeners out there, though, we will have a code at the end of the episode uh, to get you a discount on the book. Would you like to introduce yourself, Jacques? Yeah, g'day. Uh, my name is Jacques. Um, I'm a software engineer at VMware via the Pivotal Acquisition. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome. Well, uh, you know, you are writing the book on Knative, uh, or is it Knative? I think that's maybe the first question we have for you is how do we say it properly? Because yeah. I'm pretty sure I've butchered it on our podcast every week for the last year. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's pronounced George. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, K-native is, is the official pronunciation. Uh, fun fact, it was, for a while, the official pronunciation was going to be native, silent K. Uh, it was determined that this was bonkers. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the sort of the official terminology is, but bonkers is how I would characterize it. Um, so K-native is what it is. So not K-native, not native, uh, K-native uh, as, as three syllables. That makes sense. The good thing about it is because, look, here's the thing, I, I'm used to people sort of pronouncing my name in all sorts of creative ways. And the thing is that it's actually good because it helps people to remember. Or make endless fun of it. I don't, I don't yeah, know. One, yeah, one of the two. We've all been in primary school. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was supposed to be native, so I'm glad to have hmm. this clarification, and I will, I will fix it now. Going forward on the cloud pod, we'll call it K-Native. No worries. Um, you know particularly why they thought that was the right name for this, or is just kind of one of those someone randomly came up with it and was like, let's go with it? That's a good question. So the original name for the project, or the original working name was Elafros or Elafros, or I'm not even sure how it's pronounced. Everybody had a different pronunciation, which was a Greek word for how is this pronounced, I think. <laughs> um, and that was, that was a sort of the original working name. And, you know, because Google were leading the partnership at the time, um, they actually have an infrastructure for, for naming things, um, believe it or not. Uh, so they sort of, you know, ran up a whole bunch of different ideas. And then, of course, uh, they have people who check to see that they're not going to run into a trademark problem and it doesn't mean something rude in Swahili uh, and all this kind of stuff. And, and Knative apparently was sort of was the candidate that came out. And I think it's actually kind of a, a pretty nifty name. Uh, in the sense that it, it, first of all, it's difficult to pronounce or, or confusing to pronounce, so you're going to remember it. Uh, but second of all, because it it does sort of, you know, foreshadow one of the guiding principles of Knative's design, which is that it should be, uh, you know, native to Kubernetes. It, it should feel like a, a natural extension of Kubernetes. I almost feel like it, it, it should it should be considered part of Kubernetes. It's it's almost an essential. Yeah, I mean that depends a lot on what you think. Kubernetes ought to be or ought to have been. Um, I, I've made the point before that the thing that happened with Kubernetes is that it never quite defined whether it was meant for developers who are sort of developing applications and systems. And on the one hand, and on the other hand, the people who are operating those systems, the operators and the platform engineers, 
it sort of mixes those considerations all together. And, you know, from my, my background at Pivotal, I, I spent a lot of time working around Cloud Foundry. And, and so I saw the benefits of being able to have one face, which is very developer-centric, and another face, which is very operations-centric, um, so that the two can get along largely by ignoring each other. Knative, to me, is is heading towards that North Star. It's basically sort of saying, like, well, what if you could use Kubernetes without having to get a PhD in Kubernetes first? And, you know, I could I could focus as an application developer on, please just run my thing, and I want traffic to go to it, and I want upgrades to be basically sane. And it's surprising that you have to be something of an expert in Kubernetes to do that with vanilla Kubernetes. Yeah, one of my, my biggest complaints about Kubernetes is the complexity. And I think the complexity of... You know, endless YAML files, centralized teams having to orchestrate this stuff mm-hmm. uh, just really bothers me in a, in a really fundamental way because that's the dream of cloud is to make everything more you build it, you run it, and you manage this. Mm-hmm. And if the requirement for me to you build it, you run it is I understand a very, very complicated uh, orchestration layer, that's not really the best scenario. And so uh, I'm kind of glad to see tools like Knative coming out to kind of help really evolve that story in the future. Yeah, so am I. And, and I, was, I was excited to see it. You know, it was like that scene in Jurassic Park where she sits down the machine and says, this is Unix, I know this. And, and that, was, that was my feeling. And seeing, you know, Knative at first blush, I was like, yes, this, this, is, this is what was supposed to be there along. I mean, I remember at one point I sat down you know, in, a, in a product we were developing, uh, what has become KPAC, a build service or build system uh, for Kubernetes. And at one point, you know, we had a story at the top of the backlog that said, add HTTPS support, just didn't seem like a big deal. I'm like, sure. And that turned into a, a week-long quest. You know, I, I came back, I like waved a vorpal, I collected a couple of buckets of booty and, and also had a lot of hard-won knowledge about ingresses, which I really wish I didn't have to know. I really just didn't didn't want to know. I just wanted to be like, flick the button that says HTTPS. This is an unfortunate point because there's still a little bit of cord jiggling left in Knative in that respect. Um, but I, I blame Kubernetes for it. In terms of where... It can wind up. I still think that platforms as a service and you know their their sort of mind child functions as a service are the north star. You, you you just don't want to think about these things. You just want to write software and have it run some way sensibly. My general feeling about Kubernetes is, is that um, in a way I felt like it was a step back from platform as a service because now you had to go back and you had to manage all this all this complexity again yeah. and, and so is it so do you think knative is really what's brought kubernetes back back up to the, the cloud native um, level of functionality it's interesting i saw a presentation by joe beta who's who's one of the um one of the three sort of founding architects of kubernetes and and tremendously thoughtful and not too triumphant in a way that i would be in his position um and he he made the sort of the point that a platform as a service like Cloud Foundry starts with the user and, and worked backwards towards what the implementation needed to be. Kubernetes, in its original design, was was about um, well sort of squared away primitives that could then be reassembled into something. And these these are, in a way, both perfectly reasonable options. Uh, and and Kubernetes was a step backwards in terms of the ease of use point of view for a long time and and there are still lots of uh, opportunities for improvement but in terms of the components that can be assembled it was a step forward it came from various experiences about the design of systems of its kind but it goes back to my, my point about the decisions of who can see what or who has to think about what you know as a developer you know, Kubernetes exposes a great deal of detail to me, which may not be of interest to me. 
Um, and and that, that creates, you know, cognitive drag. I have to carry a bunch of things around my head just in case they turn out to be important. Um, and in that respect, yes, I think it was, it was in its initial sort of uh, form, a step backwards as an experience. And this is ironically probably going to get worse. Um, so the, the main extension mechanism for Kubernetes is the custom resource definition. You might have heard of those. CRDs are often called. And because of the way CRDs work, you will be able to install a bunch of different things that, that extend Kubernetes relatively smoothly, but they all appear in a pile together. Uh, and all of the different layers appear at the same the same level in the user interface experience of, of kubectl. So in, in Knative, one of the things we have been trying to do is to say, if we have these higher level abstractions, it should be possible for a developer to learn basically these abstractions and not have to learn everything about Kubernetes. In, in the book, that is what I am in, aiming to do, is to, to say to the reader as they come through the door, I don't expect you to know pretty much anything about Kubernetes. You might have heard about it and wondered what the fuss was, but I don't expect you to know it or, or have even done a tutorial. I really appreciate that actually in the book. Uh, you know, I've read through the first three chapters here and I, I appreciated that it was not, here's how to make Kubernetes work for the first three chapters. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Let's take a little bit of a step back here and maybe you can kind of describe uh, what is Knative and maybe what you tell your, your mother or grandmother when you try to explain what you do, which is always a, a fun exercise. It's, it's a mechanism for turning type into, into paychecks. Um, I don't know, but I have a very cynical family, so that, that joke would travel well. No. <laughs> to, to me, it is, it is really about that, that mission of making a developer happy and enabling a developer to, to get to the thing that they wanted to do. Nobody ever, you know, really comes to a computer in the morning and says, gee, what I really look forward to today is messing around with stuff that has nothing whatever to do with what I'm trying to achieve. Um, so I am enthusiastic about it. I would say at a top level, as a mission, you know, developer happiness and, and operator happiness through clear abstractions and separations. In terms of what it is as uh, like subcomponents, there are two sort of major subsections or subunits of, of Knative or subprojects. Um, there is serving, which is the one that deals with, you know, traffic being switched over and auto scaling and the definitions of your software process as it's running. And the second major component is eventing, which is about how do I connect these things together if I want to have an event driven system with, with heterogeneous, you know, inputs and outputs. And together, those cover a lot of the scope of, of what you want out of a, out of a system to get some work done. How do you feel when people compare it to just Lambda for Kubernetes? Do you feel that sells it short, or is that a relatively simple definition of it? That's an interesting question. The initial sort of, I guess you could say, emphasis in Knative really was focusing on functions as services as the primary overriding mission. And one of the things that came out with the the early discussions with people from different companies as we as we sort of like felt around in the dark for a shared vision um, was that. Insofar as the layer of, uh, I guess you could say, delivery or distribution or, or defining what your software is, is, is a container, then in many ways, a function is not that distinguishable from what we used to think of as an application. It's, it's a place where traffic goes to, where some software runs, and then something comes back out. And that the distinction is not that important. One thing I found fascinating, I've, I've now gone to a couple of conferences, uh, like Serverless Conf in, in New York, or serverless days. I, I hope I'm not mixing those up and, and, and thereby getting myself blackballed. Um, 
is, you know, people sort of talking about this, this beef between functions as a service and containers. And it was just like, this beef, why does it matter? I was not aware that it was a thing. So the comparison to Lambda is not wrong, um, but it's not complete either. Does Knative only solve problems for people who are already Kubernetes users, or do you think Knative would actually attract new customers to to that ecosystem over something like AWS Lambda or Fargate? I, I would hope that it will help people to come into the Kubernetes ecosystem with a minimum of pain. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are good economic reasons for choosing a managed service. Um, one of the reasons you know Google have Cloud Run is that they they both want to support Knative as as an experience, but also you know obviously to they're in business they they want a business and they recognize that for a lot of people, you know serverless that is serverlessly serverless you know like all the way serverless uh, is a very attractive experience. Lambda is is sort of like the reference case there. Uh, Google Cloud Run. Um, you know, speaks Knative. It has all the Knative uh, interface bits and you don't have to care about running a Kubernetes cluster. And I fully expect that as other vendors and, you know, disclosure, I work for one, as other vendors uh, move towards their packaging stories and their installation stories, that this experience will reemerge for developers. It will, it will look and quack exactly like the serverless experience you would get from a, from a cloud provider. Who's actually driving the, the development of Knative? I mean, uh, who, are the, who are the stakeholders exactly? I would say mostly at the moment it's, it's driven from within the, the people who, who work on it full time um, and the experiences that, it, that each of us brings. Um, so Knative is, you know, in, in no sense not a vendor-driven project. Um, so there is, there is a, what you might think of as a sort of a rail, I wouldn't say rail politic. That sounds very macabre and dark. Uh, what I'm trying to drive at is that there is a realism about the nature of, of open source of a project of this kind, which is that it requires full-time engineering mm-hmm. and it requires, you know, dedicated, you know, setup of equipment and services. And, and it's a lot of money to do something of this scale and complexity to make something simple. So in that respect, uh, a lot of what will come out is, is that, you know, those of us who are involved will have a mix of our experiences with different products uh, and services from the past. Um, also, we come to it with different experiences of talking to our respective customers. And, and also there is, a, there is a community, there is a nascent community forming around it um, from, from folks who you might not sort of think of as, as traditional vendors, but who are applying it to different purposes uh, and have lots of questions. Um, so that's the sort of the mix of what's driving it, I think. Cool. So when you um, think about platform as a service, and you know you mentioned Cloud Foundry, uh, you know, that's where you work <laughs> with Pivotal, at least not Cloud Foundry. But how do I think about you know what Knative was bringing to table versus what Cloud Foundry was bringing to the table, you know, prior to the acquisition and the and the pivot to being more Kubernetes focused? So how do I rationalize those? What was the challenge we're trying to solve with Cloud Foundry versus Knative, and how do I try to think about them? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question uh, because no matter how I answer, somebody somewhere is going to scream. But I I would say um, I, I would say you know for for many years uh, in the early days of Kubernetes, as as people were building DIY platforms on top of it, I would I would feel like I had wandered in from the desert with a dirty beard and and scruffy clothes, screaming at the top of my lungs, "We've already built it! God damn it! We've already built it!" Um, and and sometimes I feel that way still. So in many respects, I think Cloud Foundry is still, you know, an outstanding reference case and, and still has a long life ahead of it. Uh, you know, 
Pivotal or VMware now after the acquisition is is investing very heavily in Cloud Foundry. You know, we've got a lot of folks working on rebasing it, so to speak, onto Kubernetes, replacing the components that we don't need to have bespoke implementations of any anymore with with you know more common community options and so on. So Cloud Foundry has a long life ahead of it. With Knative, what we saw was an alternative possibility. When, when we first saw Knative, it was, let me see, it would be early 2018, so two years ago. You know, and, and one of the open questions was, we have an extremely powerful and mature code base in, in Cloud Foundry. We have many customers who have staked everything on it. Um, but also, they want to know what the, the Kubernetes direction is going to be. Um, and Knative imagine it's sort of like, okay, a lot of these things rhyme with, with the, the hymn sheet we've been singing from from a long time. And we're not idiots. We don't know, you know, the future. It would be irresponsible not to both invest in Knative as a candidate platform that, that may, you know, take the world uh, by storm, but also to continue investing in Cloud Foundry because many of our customers have entrusted their workloads to us through Cloud Foundry. And that's more or less where the strategy still is, uh, with the just you know the disclaimer that I am a lowly engineer. Um, I, I still think that we are investing heavily in both of them, and that many of our customers who are comfortable and satisfied with Cloud Foundry will remain comfortable and satisfied with Cloud Foundry well into the future. The other thing too is that there's a lot of cross pollination of ideas. Um, so, for example, in Cloud Foundry, there's now a concept of a revision, which is directly inspired by the concept of a revision in Knative, and, and vice versa. In, in Knative, you, you see, you know, occasional decisions uh, or references to Cloud Foundry as a user experience. You know, you'll see people talk about um, CF Push as a as an experience, and and you know, what would it be like if you had that? That's interesting. Uh, how do you feel about other uh, serverless type solutions in the space? You know, Lambda versus Azure Functions versus Google Functions, or even something like OpenFaz compared to Knative. I don't have strong opinions. <laughs> is is the truth of it? I know that's boring. I should I should really work up like a a, a disrap. Yeah. <laughs> what rhymes with Lambda anyway? <laughs> I, nothing. Nothing rhymes with Lambda. Nothing rhymes with Lambda. Well, certainly that's what Amazon wants you to believe. Um, I, I, I got to give Lambda credit for for the pioneering work. So I was a bit salty about it at first. I, I participated in some of the early investigative work at Pivotal with with some other folks, uh, sort of going like, okay, this this functions as a service thing. Where does it fit in in our world? Because um, we we had the innovators dilemma, and we still do. We always will. Uh, which is that we were pioneers in a field, and and but the field is ever changing, and it, it's difficult to be successful pioneer and 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 not get locked into your into your ways. So we were looking at functions as a service, and I remember, you know, looking at all all of the the nascent uh, platforms, including Lambda, but also all the open source ones that were that were at the time contending for 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 viability, like Fission and Kubeless, and sort of thinking, you know, they're really reinventing platforms as a service with with some slight tweaks, you know, and, and so I had the, the joke for a while where, you know, FAS is just PAS where you've you've scribbled out the round bit of P. <laughs> That's pretty clever, though. <laughs> Thank you. And and actually, when I wrote the report that we, we handed into to senior management to give them guidance, um, the thing that cracked me up was that uh, the the Google spell checker at the time was trying to correct Paz to Faz for me. It would be like, did you mean Paz? Um, oh, sorry, other around Faz to Paz. So I, I I took a screenshot of that, put it at the top because uh, you know I I obviously don't value my job. So, <laughs> but but to answer your question, I think Lander is is 
deserves credit as the pioneers both of the sort of the experience and of the con- the concept that it can be reduced to the smallest possible unit of execution being a function unless we have instruction computer instructions as a service someday uh, and you know that that and also the billing model as well like the economic model really I guess was probably the really big breakthrough and distinction from previous generations of PaaS was that that it was billed for exact execution time you were billing for consumption rather than for capacity um, whereas your classic PaaS, something like Heroku or Cloud Foundry, very often you would be more or less billed for some measure of capacity, right? So uh, at Pivotal, the way that we build for our version of Cloud Foundry was what was called application instances. You know, how many things could you be running at a high watermark on the platform at the same time? And that was really selling capacity. You, you might not use that watermark 100% of the time, uh, but that's not the same as consumption. Right, it, it's not the same as uh, application instance seconds. It's a high watermark, not not an area under a curve. Um, so I think that th- those I think are the, the sort of the, the the impressive and novel things. But having a good idea first doesn't give you a monopoly on it. Uh, and I think you know while Lambda have an amazing lead, I think that people are going that there is a hunger for an installable option. Yeah, with, uh, with an open source uh, implementation. So what, what drove you to write a book about Knative? That's a tough question. Um, I think, well, actually, no, it's, it, it's an easy and a hard question. I remember talking to the acquisitions editor about this and saying, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a tough decision because on the one hand, uh, it's terrible to say, yes, it's going to be an enormous amount of work and stress. And on the other hand, it's terrible to say no because it's an incredible opportunity. Um, that's not very often I get the opportunity to just uh, yell at people for thousands of words at a time. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, informatively and educationally. Um, so the main thing was that it was I was approached uh, originally by Manning um, for various fiddly reasons. I couldn't do it right away, uh, and it's only only recently in the last uh, couple of months that I've I've been able to do it. And and. I want to give a lot of credit to my management who were open to carving out time to work on it. I, I realized that that's an incredibly privileged position to be in, uh, even within the technology industry, uh, which is a bastion of, of, of you know, uh, comfort and free soda. Um, you know, an engineer is expensive. Um, and the time I'm using on the book is, is time that I'm not necessarily using on something that could be making revenue right away. Um, so that's, that's an an amazing opportunity both to learn more about Knative to help contribute to the mission that it should be approachable to developers without needing a deep knowledge of Kubernetes. You have uh, probably signed up though for a lot of updates here as Knative kind of uh, moves through its cycles. I assume mm. that what the book looks like today will not be, uh, you know, or what it looks like now will be diff- completely different in three years from now and you'll be on version six. <laughs> it's, enti- it's entirely possible um, that, that that will be the case. Uh, you know, there, there are already sort of parts of chapters where I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to go back and tweak that um, because of changes that have been made or, or things where, like, uh, I had a technical editor who sort of said, well, the output doesn't look like this. And I'm like, of course it does. And then I updated, you know, my CLI version. I'm like, oh, <laughs> the outlook doesn't look like that. Output doesn't look like that. Uh, or, or another occasion where I was sort of like 2,000 words into a chapter and I sort of I came across a you know a, a missing function in the in the CLI the KN uh, CLI which is a, a CLI for interacting with Knative, and I was about two thirds 
2,000 words into, you know, the alternative way of doing things with kubectl and raw Kubernetes because it didn't have that. And I'd, I'd sort of complained almost as an aside about this. And then somebody fixed it. And so I had to throw away, <laughs> throw away 2,000 words. Um, but it was for the good, right? Like in terms of like, sure, it sucks for me, but but I'm not the person who's meant to benefit from Knative or from the book. I learned a lot just reading through the three chapters you have on the early access now, uh, some things I didn't know about it. And I, I do enjoy your, your disdain for Spinnaker, uh, which I share. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say now? <laughs> there's, a, there's a comment somewhere in there in the, in the sub notes where you say, uh, the Spinnaker people can put their hands down now. <laughs> That's right. And I, I sort of chuckled about it because I was like, oh, so, so glad that other people think Spinnaker is kind of, kind of crappy. I, I, have, I have disdain for everything. Um, it, it's it's actually just disguised uh, self hatred. But what happens? Well, it's true. Every 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 once in a while, you sort of look at it and go, oh, well, "What kind of idiot is this?" And they've done this wrong. They've done that wrong. And then you catch yourself doing the same thing. And you're like, "Aha! That's <laughs> that's what's going on." You, you you realize that this person is actually an image of you, and and boy, now do you feel silly. There's a certain sort of feral joy in in making jokes, even if it's not always empathetic. One one of the values that we 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 had a pivotal historically and many people have brought across into VMware is, you know, being empathetic, being, being kind. That was one of the three sort of great virtues, you know, do the right thing, do what works, be kind. And I got to say by far the hardest of those is being kind. You know, doing the right thing is, is really hard. Doing something that works is, is the, is kind of, you know, ironically the easiest, but not, but often the one we obsess about as, as engineers. And, but being kind is, is really difficult. It's real work. Uh, and I am not that great at it. Uh, I, I have to admit, I, I, I do my best. But I also have strong feelings uh, about so many things in the technology industry. And, and very often, I, I have when, if I've had a frustrating experience, I, I carry that frustration with me for a long time. Um, and, and you'll see some of that in the book. There'll, there'll be, there, there are moments when I sort of grump and take advantage of the fact that they're letting me write the book with, with you know, a reasonably light hand to... to have an aside, you know, go to the fireside and have a chat about something that bugs me. That is enjoyable. And I think it adds so much to these technical books, which can be sometimes very dry <laughs> in their approach. And so I, I always do enjoy a little humor in the books and a little bit of color that you can kind of get that insight. So I, I do enjoy that. And it makes me kind of relate a little bit better. So <laughs> yeah, very I, helpful. I mean, the thing is that a lot of these asides, you know, a lot of these things where it's an annoyance is, is, is actually illuminating and it illuminates why a thing is the way it is. And, and the other most painful lesson I've had in my career has been like something that seems radioactively stupid on its surface. Very often there's a good reason um, that you just didn't think of. Um, I had so many examples of this when I was when I started at Pivotal. I was working in Pivotal Labs, which was the consulting wing. Uh, I was there for about two years. We did a lot of client engagements. Every and and the first client engagement I did, they had this this wacky thing which I can't go into. But I remember thinking, well, that's idiotic, and chortling to myself at how superior I was. And and then after the you know towards the end of the engagement. Um, they explained it to me. And while it was still kind of a zany thing, I, I could see why they didn't have any other choice. And I felt, you know, very bad uh, for, for that. Um, but the other thing too is that, you know, as, as engineers, we're still humans. Uh, our experiences of our systems are not sort of purely like we're, we're floating Cartesian, you know, energy mines in space, right? We, we, we interact with these systems, we have an emotional reaction to them. And 
our memories of them, our knowledge of them, our, and our understanding of them are coloured and tinged with emotion. So I think it's acceptable and not a bad thing to to to, to express some emotion in the book. And most of the time, I express that hopefully with with reasonably funny jokes, but but also you know with, with the sort of the tinges of thing where I'm, I'm impressed by something or I'm upset by something, uh, and hopefully that that helps with the learning. I, I think it makes people want to read the book as well because uh, there's a vast difference between telling a story of experience and and the struggle to to do a thing for a reason versus it being an encyclopedia or just a ref, uh, just a reference manual, just just a man page. So I think yeah. I, I think I, I like I like your approach to the whole thing. Yeah, I think that, I think a Wikipedia. You know, a Wikipedia of, of sort of like ancient Greek monsters is not as interesting as the Odyssey. <laughs> that perspective you just kind of talked about, about technology, and it's almost a cynicism, you know, born out of scars of the time that this storage controller burned me in an outage mm-hmm. for 24 hours, and, you know, this vendor didn't work the way I wanted to. And that empathy and that cynicism and stuff, it kind of colored a lot of technology people. It's, it's actually a really interesting topic and almost a sort of blog post you could almost write on its own, just uh, your perspective on it. Because I think it's a really healthy perspective that everyone is colored and burnt in the fires of their experience. And everyone's experience is different. I mean, I've had my experiences with service technologies that I don't want to use anymore for those reasons. And other people love those things. And they're not wrong. And I'm not wrong either. But my experience of that world is completely different. So that's that's an interesting perspective. Well, the the hardest thing in those discussions actually is I I see this more with like work practices than technologies, but it still comes up in technologies. Um, There's this this concept in psychology called naive realism, uh, which is the feeling that whatever it is that you apprehend to be the truth is the actual truth and that other people are mistaken or do not have all the facts or perhaps are in some way motivated to to misrepresent the truth. Um, and you see a lot of debate or, or, or are just not very smart. Once once it's pointed out to you, you see it everywhere, especially in yourself, which is very mortifying. Um, but this, this comes up in different experiences of technologies or different experiences of development practices where somebody has had a really bad experience with a technology or a practice. Another person's had a really great experience with a technology or a practice. And they start talking to each other, typically through Hacker News, which is the fount of all trouble. And they get the feeling that the other person is, is somehow, you know, sort of subtly accusing them of lying, right? They, they might not have the conscious thought of that, but what they're feeling is like the other person is dismissing their experience and they know their experience was real. It was a very strong and emotional experience. Um, and so when another person says, well, it's not like that, um, that could be very upsetting. Uh, this for me mostly has come up with discussions of pair programming, which I love and which I didn't really think would work until I went and worked at Pivotal. Um, but a lot of people had really bad experiences with pair programming. And I, I would get really worked up about what they were saying to me, that it was rubbish or bad or, you know, bad for so-and-so. And I'd be saying, look, I, I had the experience. I've been doing this for years. But I, I had to learn to acknowledge that they also had had an experience and that it was a genuine experience. But what had happened is that we had different experiences. Um, one of the challenges for any technology is to make it as pleasant, I guess, as possible, but also as, as trustworthy as possible. There's that joke that, you know, reputation arrives on foot and leaves on a horse. And it's, <laughs> and it's doubly true because in technology, it arrives on foot and it leaves in a rocket-powered, self-propelled, self-driving car. One of my favorite authors, Terry Pratchett, wrote about something that was powered by bad news because bad news travels fastest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I think that sounds about right. 
you know, one of the big things that we endlessly talk about in Lambda world and even in Azure functions um, is the tooling around it. And so mm-hmm. you've had things like the SAM framework kind of come out of that. Mm-hmm. You've had serverless.com come out of that. Mm-hmm. How do you feel Knative will fit into that or does it have a d- better paradigm that's going to replace these paradigms that are somewhat broken in their own ways? I think in those specific cases, Knative has primitives which answer broadly for them. Um, I think the personally i'm sort of in the camp that that configuration should be declarative so already i'm sort of you know pushing the boundaries of what what serverless.com uh, wants to do for you um, and that puts me towards more the sam camp but on on the other hand how do i put this sam has a, a very much a sort of an added later kind of feel to it yeah it does it, it feels very much like a restricted box and if i don't fit in the box there's no path out so the, the the hard thing about a functions like going to a full functions as a service approach, um, and why I don't sort of like encourage people to to do it first off, is when you switch to functions as a service, your your traditional connective tissue between parts of your program was was that everything was in process and the compiler had sorted it out for you. Like yeah, the CPU was jumping directly from address to address in memory, and it was wonderful as far as it went. Um, when you switch to functions as service, that connective tissue is still necessary, but it has become enormously more complicated and relatively brittle. So you have to be aware that you are going to have to solve some of these problems. These tooling, this this kind of tooling has to emerge. Knative provides some of it, and I expect that it will evolve to provide more. Um, where gaps still exist, I imagine that vendors and other platforms will help to fill them in. Um, but I think one thing that helps a lot is to see it as part of a spectrum. This this is actually one area where Knative does actually shine over over the sort of the the alternatives you mentioned. Is that it? It doesn't sort of say functions are, are the way, the light, and the truth, and the only thing you have. It's relatively agnostic to whether you're using it for functions as a service purposes or more classical platform as a service purposes. In that, I can be running an application that I intend to stick around for a long time, or it could be a one shot function. That's meant to go away. It's broadly the same to Knative, uh, <clears throat> and that it means that a lot of these additional sort of pain points don't exist in the same way. You mentioned Knative basically being open source and this open platform that's deployable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been recently been some news about Google's hesitation about you know donating it to a foundation. How do you feel about that, and how does that potentially change the direction of Knative if Google decides to keep hold on to this long term? That's a, a really difficult question to answer. I'll, I'll start with the top thing. I would say that everybody from Google who I've interacted with in the context of Knative has been honest and trustworthy and want you know desperately wanting to do the right thing and the same has been true for you know people from Red Hat SAP IBM uh, and and many other organizations who've been involved everybody really wants to be there and really wants um, there to be a successful community and you got to bear in mind that like when 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 we first got involved you know pivotal and and, and Red Hat got involved um, yeah, I remember the first sort of call. And it was, it was kind of awkward, you know, like you're meeting your existential enemy and it's sort of like, all right, you kids play good now. Um, and, but, it, but you sort of realize that it's all just people. So that, that's the first thing I would start with is I would say that all of the individuals at the coalface are motivated to do the right thing. I think that there are dynamics within Google that I can only try to infer or guess at. 
Um, it's a bit like Krem- Kremlinology from the 80s, if you remember that. Um, yes. trying, to, trying to sort of like work out what's happening at party headquarters. Um, and I can come up with theories that are very elaborate, and I have. And then somebody will talk to me and I'll, I'll get a bit of information. It turns out it's wrong. You know, Google has to think carefully about what is in its best interest. My opinion is that what is in Google's interest is what is in the community's interest, which would be to donate it to a foundation. Um, that's my strong personal opinion. And I think that it would be the personal opinion of pretty much everybody who works on Knative today. However, the reality is that Google was the founding organization and they still have the say of a founding organization and that at the moment they have not come around to the same point of view. I'm, I'm hopeful that they will. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely hopeful that as time goes on, the relevant leadership at Google will see that it, it works better for them and it works better for everybody, that it's, it's better to have a, you know, a big slice of a, of a growing pie uh, than to have the whole pie. It's definitely, I think, a mistake not to do it, but I see their point when they look at Kubernetes and they realize how powerful Kubernetes has become and if they had owned that versus you know making it open source, then they wouldn't have Azure coming after them. They wouldn't have Amazon coming after them. But I think they both have a really powerful Lambda and Azure function service that works. And so, hmm. you know, Knative, yeah, you could port it to Amazon, you could port it to, but I don't necessarily see that Amazon or Azure are going to make a service around Knative for EKS. I just, I just don't see that. So I, I don't know. It's a little weird. I, I see both sides of that politically or why that mm-hmm. might be the case, but you know, again, I, it's speculation and you're speculating and I'm speculating, but uh, it is interesting wrinkle. V- vendor politics is real. It exists. And you know, I, I, I see people get very worked up about that, you know, and, and imputing, uh, <laughs> conspiracies. And most of the time it's, it's not that complicated, but it's, it's real because, you know, like, a, we're all humans. Uh, B, sometimes we have economic interests that are not, you know, zero sum. There is some conflict. Um, you know, a, a contract that's won by VMware is, a, is probably a contract that can't be won by Red Hat. But, you know, I, I think it doesn't, it doesn't have to sort of be super dark. I, I, I do think that, you know, that there may be, we'll talk about sort of like emotional reactions and, and scar tissue to, to, to powerful experiences. And I, I think the tidal wave, the, the exponential sort of explosion of, of Kubernetes and the way it swept all before it, um, you know, must've been, must've been thrilling, but it also must've, they must've felt, Oh, we didn't, we didn't hold on to the lottery ticket, you know? And, and if I imagine myself in the position, I, I can see myself being frustrated. And what I would say is if, if that is what's happened, and again, I'm speculating, then I, I would sort of, I hope that they would see that part of the reason Kubernetes exploded so so spectacularly was that it moved into a neutral foundation. You know, like if if you are Red Hat today and Kubernetes came along for the first time and, you know, you were deciding whether or not to, to invest heavily in it as they did, um, you, you might not have. And you might have been reluctant. And people out there who, who chose to adopt it might have been reluctant. You know, Google's ability to pick winners simply because of its powerful aura in the community is, is greatly diminished uh, from where it was five or six years ago. I continue to be hopeful that Google leadership will come around to the view that, you know, Kubernetes being donated to the foundation was a right and contributed to its success uh, and that you know their success is is best served by the same thing again. And if anything, on a purely business basis, 
yeah, hamstring K native is you know a, a vote for not K native, so to speak, is a vote for Lambda. So from a from a purely financial consideration, I think they should they should do it. If you're interested in checking out the book K native in action, uh, you can go to the K native in action website, which is in the show notes, and use Pod Cloud twenty as your discount code uh, to get a discount on the early access work. I know you have a lot of really exciting chapters. I learned a lot from the first three that are already out. I'm sure you have a, a pretty schedule, a pretty aggressive schedule over the next year here to get this book out. Oh fully. yes, yes, I am. I am motivated to finish. So definitely do check that out. And uh, really thank you for coming on the show and uh, talking about Knative and educating both uh, Jonathan and I. We really appreciate it and our listeners. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully I've said nothing that will get me fired. I'm, I'm kidding. I, I, I work for a great company with great people. Yes, they are. Uh, it is a great company. I've always really respected the Pivotal people and, and VMware as well. So. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Thank you very much for coming. We uh, hope to maybe have you on the main show sometime to talk about Kubernetes and Knative. There's a lot happening, uh, and we're always looking for guest hosts to come and uh, share their insights. And uh, also, you get to comment on all the all the other garbage from the other clouds. So, yeah, <laughs> it's always fun. That's right. No worries. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jack. Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.